lunch of it me being over in the hospital. Oh, yeah. Dinner and dinner. People feeding you. Well, good afternoon, and welcome to this Dean's Dialogue. This year's topic is living lives of consequence. Usually we have a question, and that's not really a question, it's a statement. But there's a multitude of questions that are held inside of, of the statement of living lives of consequence. Uh, the reason that Duke Chapel sponsors these Dean's Dialogues is so that in a university setting, we have space to discuss the larger issues of common concern. Because if we don't have the privilege of doing that in this environment, it's difficult to know where the, such questions would be discussed. And so we'd like to uh, thank Dean Andrews for giving her time uh, to, to talk about uh, the medical profession and what it means to live lives of consequence in that environment. So I'm going to also ask uh, your forgiveness for another thing, although it's not my fault. Uh, Sam Wells is practicing hospitality to a host of organisms that have found in him a welcome home. That's church speak for he's violently ill and is unable to be with us. So for this afternoon, I'm going to try to channel Dean Wells. Um, I'm sorry I can't quite get the accent down, but he has given some of his questions, and so I'll incorporate those in the afternoon. And uh, my other thing that I'd like to ask an apology for is, uh, Dean Andrews, I've, I've greatly curtailed your biography, because if I gave the entire bio, it would take much of the time that we have. And so I'm just going to make a very short introduction. Uh, Dean, uh, Dean Nancy Andrews came to us here at, at uh, Duke School of Medicine in October of 2007. Uh, among many other things, she was also the first woman to lead one of the nation's top 10 medical schools. Um, and before coming to us, 1999 to 2003, she was director of the Harvard MIT MD PhD program. And from 2003 to 2007, Harvard Medical School Dean for Basic Sciences and Graduate Studies. Uh, Dean, Dr. Andrews is also professor in the departments of pediatrics and pharmacology and cancer biology. She received her BS and MS degree in molecular biophysics and biochemistry from Yale University, her PhD in biology from MIT, and her MD from Harvard Medical School. Who do you root for when sports are played? Yale. Oh, Yale, well done, okay. <laughs> Settle down, okay. Uh, suffice it to say that in every stage of her career, she has excelled and excelled greatly. She has authored over 100 peer-reviewed articles and 16 chapters and has received many awards and honors for her research. I'm probably less well-known to you. My name is Gaston Warner. I'm Director of University and Community Relations for Duke Chapel. I received my BS degree from Brown University, my Master of Divinity from Duke Divinity School, and then an MBA from the University of Durham in England. I'm a United Methodist minister, and I serve churches in England and Chicago and in North Carolina. Most of my time in the parish has been in inner city and immigrant congregations. The other half of my professional life I've spent in parachurch organizations, especially those having to do with housing, and homelessness, and a brief stint as Director of Development for Durham Habitat for Humanity and then Duke Divinity School. So I've worked a lot with the very poor and some with the very rich. 
and they seem to have a, a great deal in common. But without further ado, I welcome you to the Dean's Dialogue. I ask that as we ask questions and discuss things down here in front, that you think of questions that you may have. Uh, toward the end of our time, we'll have about 15 or 20 minutes for you to ask general questions. And so take notes as we go along if something pops into your mind. Seamless transition. <laughs> I'd like to start off by asking, if, if you don't mind, it strikes me that there's probably many easier jobs than being dean of Duke School of Medicine. What is it that drew you to this position, and what on earth keeps you in it? <laughs> well, uh, probably the place to start. Am I the right level or too loud? It's okay. All right. Probably the place to start is how I um, ended up thinking about becoming a dean of any medical school. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think it'll be much more obvious to people why I would choose Duke. Um, so I started out uh, as late as college expecting that I was going to be a research scientist and not thinking about medical school, um, in part because I was kind of turned off by the pre-med culture um, at the time. I'm sure that's changed and there's... Uh, no such thing as pre-meds <laughs> anymore, right? Um, but I, and I was pretty sure I wanted to do science, and in a way, in my family, that made me uh, something of an oddity because uh, my parents, my father is a lawyer who spent uh, the part of his career when I was still living at home um, working in the community for uh, a legal aid type operation and working with young people who got in trouble my mother was a social worker, and so for me to think of something as far from service as uh, science, although, of course, kind of science that Bart Haynes does up there in the back is unquestionably of service, but um, I was very interested in it as an academic pursuit, as an intellectual pursuit. Um, went to college expecting to become a chemistry or biology professor someplace, and then uh, late in college started to get interested in medical school because I knew people who were um, doing both science and medicine and going off to MD-PhD programs, and that sounded great. Um, so I did it. I, I uh, practiced medicine after I finished for a number of years. My primary focus was always the science, um, but did uh, pediatric hematology oncology as a um, academic physician, um, and hadn't thought a whole lot about administration. But you know, I think um, physicians clearly do a tremendous amount for patients, and it, it'd be hard to say that uh, they aren't doing a lot of good. But I always had an urge that um, wasn't satisfied either by the science or by uh, seeing patients and, and taking care of them. And I wanted to do something of service that uh, that felt more along the lines of what I really grew up expecting that I should be doing, I think, based on what other people in the family had done. I just felt like I wasn't doing enough for the world. And I think that's kind of an odd reason to get into administration. But um, I started to get involved with the MD-PhD program at Harvard and then later in the dean's office at Harvard because I thought I could do a lot more by helping young people get their careers going uh, do a lot more good that way than I was likely to do either in my own laboratory uh, as much as I enjoyed it or um, in, in medical practice. Um, so 
gradually over the years, uh, I went up through administration in, at Harvard Medical School, um, enjoyed a lot my time in the dean's office there, uh, doing a job that has many things in common with the job here, and, and um, it, it really has, uh, in many ways, fulfilled that urge. And so when I had a call that um, they were looking for a dean at Duke, I had never been here before, but I'd heard great things about uh, Duke in this part of the country, and um, decided to come down and take a look. And as soon as I uh, had a sense of the spirit of this place, I, I was hooked. What keeps you here? What keeps me here? The basketball, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I think that uh, for me it really all comes together. Of course the great academics is part of it, but for me it's a whole package of living in a beautiful part of the country where people are, are really uh, wonderful to each other, um, where you can still be very close to beautiful uh, countryside and working in a place where um, people at the school, at the university, in the health system are good to each other and very collaborative. And in particular, um, thinking about real life problems and uh, not just focused on academics for the sake of academics, but thinking about the good that, that uh, the scholarly work here and the clinical work here can, can do. So you're, I mean, you. The things that drew you in, you haven't found, you haven't been disappointed by those? No, not at all. Um, not at all. Uh, you know, I think that the current economic climate is difficult for everybody on many levels. Um, and it's added its own challenges to what I do. But I can't think of any place I would rather be in this difficult time than here. Well, then it, it brings me to another question. As an outsider, looking in on the medical world, it strikes me that it's a, a vastly complex and, and fairly specialized world. Uh, when you hear overhear conversations such as, uh, I specialize in the lower portion of the inner <laughs> ear, um, and when I have an inner ear problem, I'm very pleased for that specialization. But when we hear people talking about developing leaders of consequence, often they talk about the ability to reach, off, uh, reach out across fields, and to see, to allow others and for themselves to see the larger picture in, in ways that allow them to change structures. Could you reflect on sure. the specialization in medicine for good uh, and for ill? So, so a couple thoughts around that. One is that um, although we're a medical school and we have over 400 medical students, um, actually that's only about 20% of the, the learners in our environment. We have students who are learning to be physician's assistants, pathologist assistants, physical therapists, uh, students who are getting their PhDs in a variety of life sciences disciplines. So I think I'll, I'll frame it as somewhat larger than just the medical specialties. Um, but even you know, uh, expanding to that larger group of um, students in our community and, and people uh, who are teaching here, um, it, still people tend to be very highly specialized. In some ways, uh, it's hard to get more specialized than a research scientist who, in some cases, I, I know a guy at Yale who was very proud of the fact that he had studied the same protein for 25 years and nothing else. <laughs> and that was a little bit too narrow for me. But, um, but um, you know, I, I think that uh, just as for me, 
um, it took some looking around to find what, what satisfied that urge. I'm not sure that specialization uh, itself is, is um, something that counters the possibility of, of living a life of consequence. I guess the way I think of it is kind of like, um, you know, an artist can take something that looks very mundane or very simple to most of the world and see in it something else and turn it into something else. And I think that um, for pretty much anything you do, if you look at it uh, in, in a sense where you want it to have meaning and want it to be of service, um, you can find a way to make it pretty important. So uh, I think that um, being a generalist or being a specialist, it, it isn't as much um, which of those you choose as what you choose to make of the, the piece of the world that you're dealing with. Do you think there's enough people? Because I, it would strike me that you have to deal in the big picture quite often and, and, and know a little bit something about almost everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or pretend it. <laughs> or, or at least pretend it very well. Um, are there enough people who are looking at the big picture to see how all those pieces of consequence fit together for the greater good? Uh, so from my perspective, uh, it's, it's impossible to know everything that's going on, and it's really important in my world and in my job to um, be surrounded by people who I think highly of and whose judgment I trust and whose creativity I appreciate and work with them um, in teams because they're going to know much more about uh, things that are important to be known, but, but I just can't get to them. Um, I think for me that's also something that drew me into this kind of job is it's an awful lot of fun to work closely with a team of people and, and watch what you're doing move an organization or a field forward. And um, so I, I'm still uh, learning many things about this place. I'm sure I will be for a long time. I had the cover for my first year that I was new here. I'm losing <laughs> that. Um, but I think that, that the way to uh, have some grasp on the big picture, even as uh, I can't see or know everything, is to have some really great people to work with. Would it switch gears just a little. Um, I remember my, my, my first years in ministry. In the first three years, I did 70 funerals. And I was steeped in hospitals and death. And seminary hadn't prepared me as much as, as I might have liked, and there wasn't time for that preparation during that period. And, and I had to think about how to deal with people in death quite a bit. In, in the medical world, since we do have a 100% mortality rate, uh, what, so far. How, so far, yes, <laughs> absolutely, good, good caveat. Um, how, how does the medical world view death? Is it viewed as failure? Is it, is it viewed as a, a natural passing? It, it's kind of like that, that often quoted comment, the, the surgery was greatly successful. Unfortunately, the patient died. <laughs> how, 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 do, how do you view kind of death in, in the medical world? Well, I think it depends a lot on what part of the medical world you inhabit. I mean, I think for a for a dermatologist, it would be easy to see why it would be a failure to have a patient die suddenly yes. in the office. <laughs> um, I, my clinical work was in pediatric hematology oncology, and, and although kids with cancer, um, even when I was still doing it, and certainly now, 
in general have a much better prognosis than adults with cancer. More of the childhood cancers are curable, not all of them by any means, but, but more of them are. Um, but even so, doing oncology, uh, you deal with death a lot, and doing pediatric hematology where you see patients who have very serious diseases like hemophilia and sickle cell anemia that have life-threatening complications. Um, you know, you also, in fact, as a pediatric hematologist oncologist, I probably had to deal with uh, issues of patients dying or, or coming close to dying as much uh, on the non-cancer side as on the cancer side. Um, I think everybody deals with it differently. I think for me, um, because it being a pediatrician, it's a little broader than just the patient. Uh, adult patients have families there too, but, but it's a different kind of relationship when it's somebody's child. Um, for me, part of dealing with it was to be able to cry with the family and to be able to um, be comfortable showing emotions. And I think generally the families were very comfortable with me showing emotions. I think that can be harder in some areas and, and probably harder in adult medicine. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess uh, the, the strategy, if you like, that I, I think um, helps to face that is just to uh, find the, the part of you that your comfort, how you can um, connect with people and, and use that. Is that something you think people just, pe people especially that, that face the issue more often than others, is that something they just pick up? Uh, or do they, do they, I mean, do, are they able to find mentors to, I mean, I, I just, I, I remember as, as kind of a minister going to other ministers who had been doing it longer than I had and finding out how yeah. that works. And I, I wondered if there's a similar uh, Maybe. I mean, I, I can think of a couple of things that probably helped. One of them was very early in medical school, the experience of, going into anatomy lab and, and learning how to dissect a cadaver and, and feeling intense emotion because you know that that's a person that was somebody's mother and grandmother. Um, I think that begins to prepare you because it gives you a very different kind of respect for human life uh, and sense of responsibility that um, someone is, is there in, having given, uh, you know, not their life, obviously, but their body for, for your education. I think it begins there, at least it did for me. I think a, a kind of mentoring that helped um, was early on when I was learning how to be a pediatric oncologist. As a fellow, um, the attendings, more senior doctors, um, one in particular, took us each aside and taught us uh, how he did what he called the day one talk, which was how you tell a family, and sometimes the child and the family, that the child has cancer. And um, just walking through the mechanical steps, you know, here are the kinds of things that are probably going through their head. Here's the kind of information they're not going to hear because they're so focused on the diagnosis. Here's how you know you really got through and they understood what you were saying. Right. Um, and, and so although that wasn't really uh, teaching how to, to deal with patients dying, I think just having a plan for those first steps could get you into the process and as a pediatrician, very importantly, get you into the relationship with the family, which you know everything else was, was gonna follow from. Right. 
I, I don't, I, I've heard this from several sources. I, I don't know that if I can vouch for the veracity of it. You, I'm sure you know better than I, but I've heard that something like 80% of uh, costs are sometimes spent prolonging the last two weeks wow. of a patient's life. Oh. Now, now that, may, that, may, that, that, that figure may be off base. I haven't confirmed it, but, but I've heard it from several places. I, I, I wondered if you'd have any reflections on that kind of yeah. side. I, it's a very difficult issue. I don't know what the, that's probably right. I, I don't know anything different. Um, you know, people uh, who realize that their lives are ending and realize that they have some control over how it happens and how soon it happens have all sorts of different reactions. And um, I think that it, in, in many ways, because of technology, people um, have have the opportunity to, to some extent, choose what works for them. There are people who don't want any intervention, and others who either themselves or their family members feel that it's really important to do absolutely everything, even if there's no chance. Um, we've had, in a sense, the luxury of, of people being able to make those kinds of decisions um, in spite of the expense of healthcare up to this point. Uh, I think it's going to get harder as there are more and more technologies that can um, create more and more different scenarios for, for what can happen uh, and come with big price tags. And I think these are very difficult issues for patients, for doctors, for ethicists to, to work through. Okay, I've got another question. This one's a little corny. I apologize. Uh, if you uh -oh. had a magic wand, I, I told you, it's a <laughs> if you had a magic wand and you could change any one thing about the medical world that would allow people to live lives, of, enable them to live lives of consequence more easily, what, what would it be? Um, by medical world, you mean what the physicians are practicing in or... However you want to define it. <laughs> You'll get no help from me. <laughs> Oh boy, um, that would help people live lives of consequence more. Um, well, I, I don't know if it's one thing or two things, but I can maybe think. You know, I think that um, it's still the case that uh, entering the medical world, whether it's as a physician or a physician's assistant, uh, or whatever, or a nurse, or whatever kind of um, practitioner you become, it, it's still a career path that's not accessible uh, to everybody um, in the way that it probably should be. And so I would think um, making it possible for uh, people who currently don't have the means to um, choose these directions, not that we need an infinite number of doctors, but I think particularly there are parts of the world where it would be almost impossible to end up uh, in this kind of career, but where there's a huge need. Right. Um, and so I guess uh, increasing access both to medical education broadly, mean that meaning um, education in health uh, careers, and also, of course, access to care. Um, and and that, that brings up a, another question. Um, I, I've often heard people lament about whatever their chosen career happens to be, that it's, it's not the profession I joined. 
and so I, I wonder if you could reflect on uh, what draws students and young people and, and people of any age that come into to, to the medical profession, what draws them in? And once they're there and their career begins, does the reality match the perceptions that they came in with? So I've wondered about this a lot recently because I have two children. I have a 13-year-old son and a 16-year-old daughter. And both of them say they want to go to medical school. And I'm thinking, why? You know, what is it? <laughs> uh -oh. Not that it's bad, but just what makes them think that? Where did they get that idea? I mean, it's not like when they were too small to remember, they would come with me on rounds and I would leave them uh, in the conference room, you know, in a, in a sleeping, you know, car seat uh, while I would go into the other room and see a patient or something. But I don't think they remember that. Um, the best I can figure out is it comes from watching Scrubs, but <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I, I don't know. Um, and you know, I, I wonder about that a lot, seriously, because as they get older, um, if they do head in that direction, are they going to get out? At my children, but but medical students in general, or people thinking about going to medical school in general, are they going to get out of it? Whatever it is that's drawing them to it, that that I haven't been able to completely define and um, it's true that things have changed dramatically since I was a student and since I was a fellow um, we work very hard here and I think most medical schools do but particularly at Duke to identify and accept students who um, really care about the world and care about making a difference um, Brenda Armstrong who runs our uh, admissions um, calls it well-developed humanism and when you talk to the students who, who we get and uh, get to know them, it's there for sure. Now, how do we keep that there, and how do we um, make sure that they find fulfillment for whatever uh, this humanistic instinct is that drew them to medicine? I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, you know, I, of course, helping people and, and curing disease and uh, doing surgery, you know, all of these things are, are satisfying because, you know, you help somebody in real time. But I have the sense that, um, you know, our students come in not just wanting to do the mechanical aspects of taking care of somebody, but with a, a much stronger urge. And um, I'd be interested to hear what they thought about uh, how that evolves or how, what young doctors Get think. Get that question down if you've got it. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I want to... Um, I hope, keep this a, a school where uh, selecting for those students, we also nurture that in them and they uh, leave here with it um, and, and make it a part of their lives after. Well, um, and, and, and you touched a little bit on, on around the world as well. And it, it seems like, I, I know Duke's ventures in Singapore aren't brand new, but, but they're still relatively new. As, as we look at having a footprint in Singapore and in other international venues, what's, what's our stance there? Do we have a colonial stance where we say, <laughs> these people don't know how to practice real medicine, we're going to teach them how? Uh, is, is it a more collaborative style where we, we, we learn from them and they learn from us? And if so, how does that start to change who we are? So I, I think it probably um, varies a lot from site to site. I've been to the, visit the school in Singapore. I haven't been to visit any of our other international sites. Um, I think in Singapore, 
maybe it is colonialism in the sense that uh, we went in there and established a medical school that's in the American model instead of the traditional British model. I, that was something that the Singaporean government wanted and Duke collaborates to have a, a medical school where students are selected after they've gone to college um, and then after four years of undergraduate, they come to medical school. So with the British, uh, we just out-colonialized the colonies. That's right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we recolonized Singapore. So that really is, in a sense, imposing our idea of how medical school should be done. But it stops at the four years of college and then medical school in many ways because um, one of the, the great uh, exciting things about the Singapore collaboration is that with a much smaller class and a newer school and uh, no established way of doing things, it's a place where educational experiments can be piloted. Uh, and that's very much part of what's happening there. And so um, although we went in, I suppose, as, uh, <laughs> as a force saying this is how to do it, we're going to get back, if all goes well, lessons about how we should be doing it here. Um, other parts of the world, it's a little harder to answer. We have, uh, through Mike Merson, the whole university has global health operations, um, particularly in Moshi uh, in Africa and, and in other parts of, of the world. Um, and I don't, you know, what I would hope is happening there is something that I think uh, Duke is trying very hard to do here in the local community. People, um, first tried to listen and understand and get a sense of what's needed, what the people there feel is needed, uh, rather than saying, okay, we're here, line up and, and come and be seen. Um, I, I, don't, you know, I don't know firsthand, but I think that's been very much how um, Lloyd Mishner, who is the uh, chair of community and family medicine, um, has been, he and, and the people in uh, that department have been um, trying to work in the community health centers around Durham. And I mean, do, do you think it's possible for the lessons that we learned there to, to, to kind of begin to change our culture too, or is there so much, I, I, I could see that there'd be difficulties with that, that, that it, sometimes the language is so different in, in, in its broadest sense of the term, and the cultures are so different. I, I just wondered how, how much we learn from other cultures um, about how we do medicine. I'm not sure if the, so a couple answers. Um, first, I think that there uh, are types of traditional medicine around the world that we don't understand on a scientific level, but uh, where there are, there's a lot to be learned um, that could be incorporated into uh, the um, kind of, I don't know if I said traditional before, when, um, but traditional in the modern sense medicine. Um, but, you know, I think uh, it's of value for um, us, for our students, for our faculty to uh, experience other cultures, mostly because it broadens who they are, whether or not there's a specific lesson about, you know, here's an herbal treatment for something that actually works, you know, aside from those kinds of lessons which are interesting too. But I think that um, understanding or, or working towards trying to understand people who have very different experiences in very different cultures is of tremendous value, you know, certainly for anybody, but especially for physicians where so much of um, how, you're, how effective you're gonna be 
depends on how you can listen and, and try to understand your patient, not just when the patient's in, in your office or in the hospital, but thinking about the rest of their life and what their illness and your interventions mean for how they live and, and what's important to them. Yeah, um, there, there, there's a recent article, and I tried to find it uh, so I could quote it, but um, that I'm a preacher, and facts don't necessarily mean everything to me. Um, but, but there was a I'm a dean, <laughs> and they don't mean everything to me either. <laughs> But there was a recent very controversial article that seemed to suggest that uh, quite a lot of research, even research uh, published in major uh, journals, um, seemed to have a high propensity to um, back the funders' desires. Um, and, and I wondered, how, how do you balance in medicine that, that tricky line between getting funding that you need to do projects and not being controlled by that funding? Okay, so um, first, the medical research that goes on here, um, the bulk of it, but not all of it, is funded by the federal government. Um, and so there, you know, presumably you're, you're free of those biases as long as the government doesn't try to control too much <laughs> what kind of science can Surely be done. That <laughs> But this does become an issue with, with um, commercial sponsors of research. And it's tricky because sometimes you have very big, expensive studies that really can only be done uh, with money that comes from sources other than the government. Um, the Duke Clinical Research Institute, or DCRI, and they see Deborah Roth up there. Uh, she is, is uh, one of their heroes. Um, DCRI has grappled with this a lot because a significant part, about 60% of their research, um, is funded by non-government sources. Is that correct? And so, uh, you know, how do you use the money for good, but at the same time not have influence? And I think they've gone to great lengths to um, untangle that problem, to both be very transparent about who's funding the research who's uh, potentially um, getting paying consulting fees for other uh, activities to the physicians involved in the research. Um, so I think the first step has been to be very open and public. And I, in fact, I think it's on their website. Um, you can just go there and, and find out as much as you want to about the industry connections. Um, I think the second part that helps is to have independent groups um, and those include the groups that review the research before it's done to make sure that it's appropriate and ethical and likely to give answers, and groups that uh, review the research as it's underway uh, to make sure that the data is what the investigators represented as being. Um, so there are controls like that where you can uh, have enough eyes on it, I guess, and enough transparency to the public um, that I think most people feel pretty comfortable in accepting the results. Uh, it's not that everybody operates that way. We work hard to make sure that everybody at Duke operates that way, but um, you still hear in the news about uh, really shameful conflicts um, sometimes. And, and I think this is a national issue um, that there are many heads trying to, to work on. Right. I'm going to ask one more question. Uh, then that, that's the cue for you all to, to get your questions lined up. Um, and, and, and here it is. Uh, 
if a major funder came forward, and if, if any major funders are here, just identify yourself. <laughs> we can speak directly to you. Uh, if, if, a major, if a major funder came forward and, and came up to you and said, Dean Andrews, what project would you like us to fund? And, and you could choose what, what, whatever, whatever project you wanted, um, but only one. What, what, uh, what would you give them? So you want the dean's answer to that? Yes, absolutely. The dean's answer is I would probe uh, the donor and find out where her interests and our in interests intersect. <laughs> oh, well done. Well answered. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> and, you know, the reality is that the large majority of gifts come from somebody who has something in mind, and, and it's a matter of working towards how that person's interest or vision or um, memory of someone that, that they want to honor, how that comes together with uh, the very many things that we need to fund. Right. Great. How's that for a slippery that, answer? That's a, <laughs> a very well worded, very beautiful answer, absolutely. <laughs> okay, it, it, it's your turn to participate now. Now we, we have microphones and we also have a very steep slope in the room. So we're gonna actually have microphone <laughs> runners. So all you have to do is raise your hand, and, and, and they, will, they will magically bring the uh, microphone to you. Are there any questions? Oh, we've got one up here. Ms. Baker, right? <laughs> I like the way there are these lights on the stairs going up. Like It reminds me of an airplane in the escape route. That's <laughs> really. Although, if the, if the airplane's at that pitch, we're in trouble. I know, that's, <laughs> what, that's what I keep thinking. <laughs> Hello. My question is about uh, the role of spirituality in health and medicine. One of the great things that I think I've seen here at Duke is Duke Integrative Medicine on campus here. And, and, and one of the things that I find exciting about the programs over there is the, the paradigm of the wheel of health. And it actually has a place for spirituality. Is that actually being utilized or, or in, uh, implemented in any aspect of the medical school curriculum? And uh, what do you see in, the, in terms of the way you see medicine and the role of spirituality in, in health? Um, I don't actually know the answer about the medical curriculum. I should, because this question has come up before, and I don't remember the answer. Um, I'm sorry, the, I'm blanking on the second part. And the, the Duke's, Duke Integrative Medicine and that role of the paradigm. Yeah. Uh, and how do you see for, uh, your, okay. for your own personal view of the role okay. of spirituality? Okay. Um, so integrative medicine, I guess, means different things to different people. We actually have a building that's called Duke Integrative Medicine. I guess my own view is that um, the, the uh, factors that come into health, wellness, uh, and illness are far more complex than the things that we understand well uh, in test tubes, uh, are far more complex than what we think we're treating when we give drugs. Um, that as complex as people are to pick just one aspect, you know, the biochemical or the mechanical if it's a limb, is too narrow and that it's very important to um, think about first the whole person and that includes their spirituality in whatever form it, it takes for that person. Um, they're the people around them, uh, not just the person but their family or their supports. Um, and then 
that how that exists over time. So not just in the snapshot of having somebody walk into a clinic, um, but really thinking about that person's life before and after um, you're with them. I, it's hard to be more specific than that, but I guess um, it's important to think about uh, really the whole picture and not to get focused on um, the very simple, you know, label this something a disease and then give it the drug that's supposed to treat that disease. Um, so. Interesting that the, the church, uh, at one time, most hospitals were, were uh, run by the church. And over time, I mean, way back when, and over time the church, ad, ad, you know, um, kind of got out of that business entirely uh, as it became more specialized in the medical world. And, and now some of the, at least in, in my tradition, some of, the, some of the Christian churches are thinking that they abdicated too much. Hmm. And, and they need to find ways of, of being able to converse with the medical world so that they can, they can care for their congregants better during, during those particular difficult huh, journeys. Interesting. Um, so, other questions? I'm interested in, in the title of the seminar, okay, Consequence, and, and what is a life of consequence? What, what does consequence mean, and, and how do you think of it in terms of medicine? I think, to me personally, it means service. Uh, it means doing something for the world that's bigger than what you are, um, and uh, having it be a, a part of your life. Um, you know, that urge that I was talking about in the beginning. I think for me, it's something of consequence when it's, it, it's something of service. Um, now, what that is specifically, I think, can be many things. And, and for many people in our community, that is the practice of medicine. Uh, for others, it's teaching. Um, for others, it's their science and, and how that science gets translated into uh, new treatments, new findings. Um, but for me, it ended up, you know, the, I think the, for me personally, um, what gives me that sense that I'm doing something of service is to try to help the people around me, students primarily, but young faculty, more senior faculty, um, fulfill their potential and, and live their lives of consequence, I guess, if you like. Uh, only in the microphone. <laughs> How could, uh, could you uh, help find ways where public schools could integrate this into what they do? And I think we're seeing that. But I think a lot of yeah. American children grow up wanting to make money as being what's consequence. And yeah. how, how, how do we deal with that? Yeah, I don't know. I, I know less about public schools than I should, especially having two kids in them. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's changed since I was in high school, my, my high school daughter is now required, although she, uh, I think, was doing this anyway, to do volunteer work. And, you know, the idea that this should be part of what you're supposed to do is, is a start. Um, I, beyond that, I have to say I'm too ignorant about what goes on in public schools. I shouldn't be. You know, I think that ideally... Um, education uh, is, is a continuum and, and people responsible for education um, in an ideal world would 
dabble at, at many places along the spectrum, not only where they're, they're working, but. Um. But I mean, it's a wonderful question. How do we go about forming human beings in, instead of just learning units? And, and how, yeah. do we, how do we get at some of those larger issues? Yeah, and we cheat in a way here by selecting for people who are well-formed when they come. Yeah. It, it is interesting to see that the Duke undergraduates, and many of you are, are well aware of this, um, 10 years ago, a few had done social service here or there. Now in every application, it is chock full of social service. There's, there's people when they start thinking of applying to colleges that are running yeah. after that because they know the admissions directors are looking for that. Sure, that's not the only reason. There's much more <laughs> altruism there. Than, but for some, I mean, they, they, they know it's required and so they're going huh. after it. And it, 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 it's beginning to trickle down into some of the uh, junior high level and, and, and below that. And you know, I, I think, uh, from what I understand, the Duke undergraduate admissions, the, the number of applicants has increased by 17% this year. Um, now, it's, I, this is supposed to be one of the peak years for all-time largest number of college applicants, um, but 17%, other schools haven't seen something like that. Uh, Harvard, I know where I came from, had a 5% increase in applications. And I bet that Duke Engage is really a big part of that. So I think it's, Maybe that's it's catching on that they're thinking that if they do uh, service it, it's good for their college application. But I also think that there's a, uh, a real drive among young people to find ways to um, be of service. And you know, I think this must be uh, for young people applying to college. They've had a, a very unusual um, lifetime compared to what I had had up to that point. I mean, they had the events of September 11, 2001. They uh, saw the massive devastation with Hurricane Katrina and the tsunami, and, uh, and then now the economy doing things that um, none of us have, have seen before. Uh, I think that they have a lot of weight on their shoulders in sure. many ways, and, and I wonder if that doesn't also, um, they have all of those things and all of the worries that come with them without the longer perspective and, and the memories of long periods of relatively stable times. And uh, I wonder if that doesn't push students more towards wanting to get involved. Sure, there must be some effects yeah. there. Other questions? When we hear that um, we have the um, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, and yet our outcomes are significantly below number one. Uh, how does this influence, or how is this being dealt with in, uh, in medical school? Are the legacy that these students are going to inherit is that? Yeah. Are they learning to deal with that? You know, I think there is, uh, and again, I, I have to say I'm somewhat ignorant of our curriculum. Um, now is when I plead. I've only been here for a year and a half. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think that the students do get a taste of what's going on in medical school, but don't really get prepared for uh, dealing with these kinds of problems. They're very tough issues, and you know I think that um, among the many other challenges the new administration in Washington has to face, this is one of the hardest. And, and I think if there were um, straightforward answers we'd be a lot further along than we are now. I think um, what we can do as a, as a school, as a university, 
is to try to open people's eyes to the questions and try to prepare people who can uh, go out and, and help work on solutions. You had a question here. Senior citizens, is this on? Is it on? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, senior citizens worry about decreasing Medicare reimbursements for physicians. We worry about maldistribution to physicians. Yeah. We worry about medical students and graduate students owing so much money that they can't go into yeah. geriatrics or internal medicine. How can that issue be addressed at Duke and nationally? Yeah, uh, again, very difficult problems. I think um, it's clear that the, especially as the population in general ages, that they're going to have to be new models. Um, I think one way to start to approach that is to let go of the idea that physicians have to be the uh, primary driver for as many aspects of care as they are now. There are uh, many things involved in taking care of somebody that um, you can approach with other kinds of training as a physician's assistant or as a nurse practitioner uh, or in other roles. And um, I think that in, in recrafting the whole system to be able to deal with uh, what is going to be a huge problem, um, taking care of an aging population, taking care of an aging population that may be more likely to have chronic diseases because we can um, keep them from dying from <laughs> acute diseases that might have killed them in the past, like uh, infections. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, it somehow the, the system's going to have to change. I don't think it's a matter of just training more doctors, but I think it's a matter of doing medicine in a smarter way. Um, what, but what's actually be, being done to do that? I mean, people have been talking about this for years. You know, we're getting older, we're living longer, there are more of us, more money's being yeah. spent for end of life. But what's actually happening to address that issue? Well, there's, you know, I think there's a lot of, um, of thinking about it. Uh, here at Duke, again, in the Department of Community and Family Medicine, um, they are actively looking at other ways of delivering care here in Durham. Uh, it's gotten a lot of press recently. It was on, I think, the NBC Nightly News. I, I can't keep my network straight. Two nights in a row. Um, not that there's an answer there yet, but they're trying different models to see what works in a cost-effective way. And I, I think that, uh, you know, just as much of what we've learned about um, medicines to treat illness, at least in, in Western medicine, has come from um, working through an understanding of things and, um, and trying to see what works and, and designing good experiments. It's not that people are being experimented on, but I think that the, the delivery of care is being studied as a, as a question to ask what works best um, to try to find new approaches. Going back to what you asked about the student loans, um, so graduate students in the sciences at least, PH, that is PhD students, generally don't have student loans because the, the current system, and I think probably a system for the foreseeable future, at least at universities like Duke, is that um, through cobbling together government funds and university funds, um, the graduate students can get through school without ha basically having their stipends uh, and tuition paid by, by these sources as an investment in what they're going to contribute later when they have their doctoral degrees. For medical students, uh, debt is a huge problem across the country. Um, 
It's a difficult one to solve because each medical student uh, that we have actually costs us about $60,000, or the education of one student is actually an expense even after the student pays tuition for the university. It's an important thing to do, and, and you know it's our mission, but it's not like the tuition is paying the full cost. And so we're caught in a balance where we want to keep the expenses as low as possible, but not make it so difficult that we can't uh, continue to, to have the operation. Um, one of the things that I'm very proud of about Duke is that our students graduate with only about two-thirds as much debt on average as students across the country. And so it's something that, that we pay a lot of attention to that we take very seriously. Again, a problem we, we can't fix yet because of the huge expense involved in medical education, um, but something that uh, is worth worrying about. We have time for one, possibly two more questions. We have one up here. You go ahead. We'll, we'll do two more. Hi, Dean Andrews. So um, I guess my question is, in today's era, um, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing medical students, um, residents, fellows? And what, do you, what advice can you give them to overcome these challenges? Um, what tools can they use? So I think uh, maybe the biggest challenge, at least thinking about challenge during their career, is how dramatically medicine's gonna change from now on. I mean, it's changed in many ways from when I was a medical student, um, but most of those are relatively minor changes probably compared to what's ahead. Um, I think that we're now in a position, uh, and, and the sequencing of the human genome is one example of this, to have a tremendous amount of information more than, um, than people who you know, spend their lives thinking about how to deal with information, currently know how to harness, to, to uh, exploit. And so um, the doctors of the future are, are gonna have to somehow um, be in a position to use information about somebody's genetics, about somebody's blood chemistry, you know, many, many things at a much more detailed level than anything we've ever experienced, um, they'll have to have new ways that haven't been invented yet to take that information and, and use it for good. I think the other thing that will fall out of this is that um, it's, you know, we sort of think of diseases in black and white terms. You either have the disease or you don't. And I think part of what's, and, and you know, you're taught in medical school, Usually it's just one disease, but sometimes it's more than one, and then as people get older, they get diagnoses piled on. I think that that whole concept is likely to change a lot, and instead, and this, this part is a good thing, instead of thinking about the diseases, we'll be thinking about people in much more individualized ways, and it's not that they have or don't have colon cancer, it's that they have um, a normal colon or they have, you know, almost imperceptible changes in cells that could go on to become a cancer all the way you know, across the spectrum to a, a fully developed cancer. So getting our heads around all this information, and it's, it's gonna be something that will require new computational approaches and new algorithms, and um, changing the thinking about it so it's not thinking about diseases, but rather thinking about individuals, not only when they have what we would currently call a disease, but also before they get it and um, you know, 
potentially even before they're born. I mean, the, over much uh, longer period of time, it is going to be a big challenge. I heard a career counselor recently say that many Duke students will spend their lives working on things that haven't been invented yet. That's the kind of students we look for. There you go. <laughs> our, and this is our final question. Uh, hi, uh, hi, Dean Andrews. Um, I was just wondering, uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about um, what your relationship with your uh, patients should look like, and I was just wondering um, if you could say a little more about um, what that should, uh, as a pre-med student, I was wondering if you could say a little more about what that should uh, look like. Um, okay, so I, I think that uh, it's very important to develop a relationship with a patient where you're comfortable getting to know them and to understand them, where um, you recognize their dignity as a person and respect that, um, where you recognize that you're only a small part of their life and, and uh, how you fit into that. Um, and where you always uh, approach them with the idea of using what you know in a very generous way to help them. Well, let's th thank you, Dean Andrews, for giving us your time tonight. Thank you. And thank you all for coming and, and discussing these issues. Please take the pizza on your way out, all of it. <laughs>